I'll go get it. Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Digging Deep. I'm Roberta Walker. And I'm Michael Glassman. We're two landscape designers who have been working in the field for well over 25 years. You might wonder why we're bothering doing a podcast, and I'll tell you, it's because we've been through years of experience and we want to share it with you. So we're going to share everything from... Our knowledge, our foibles, (laughs) our stories. Boy, we have stories. And we're going to help you create the most unique landscapes for you and your family. Yeah, that's what we'd like to do. And um, uh, we're here in Sacramento, California, and... um, a good portion of our businesses are being shut down again as of today. So um, we're going to, all of us focus to indoor activities, but one indoor activity is um, planting pots and, um, you know, doing things like that and also arranging for the holidays. But we're, after we spent the last two weeks talking about different plants and colors, we did a whole color wheel. We want to talk about, um, how to arrange them in the landscape, and then we'll talk to, about uh, pots if we can get there. Does that sound good, Michael? Sure. And we were talking, we said we would talk about plant marriages, putting plants together. Right, right. So um, one basic design, easy, easy design trick. If you have a landscape, a front yard or a landscape that's completely flat, consider adding mounds here and there. Yes. Cheap and easy, and you can make a, a nice mound. And when I say a mound, I'm not talking about a pyramid. I'm talking about a nice contoured mound. If you imagine a woman laying on her side and you see that curve down, curve up, that's the kind of mound, not a pyramid. <laughs> right. So. Something that's subtle. Um, if it's You don't want it to look like a burial ground, like something dead is planted <laughs> underneath it. Maybe something 18 to 24 inches at the most and graduate it so it doesn't just look like a volcano in the center. Exactly. Not only do you have to graduate it, but you really have to stamp all over it to get the air out of it. Because if you don't and you plant plants and a good storm comes, your soil will go away, your plant will be bare, and will most likely die. Right. Right. Absolutely. And it's also nice when you do subtle mounds in a, in, with a little change in elevation, you can also incorporate natural boulders or rock, something that's indigenous to the area to not only hold back the soil, but also to give it a little bit more texture and interest. Right. Well, in Japanese gardening or designing, what they do is they like to uh, recreate the macrocosm in microcosm, meaning that that mound that you build in your yard will represent a mountain. Right. And a boulder or a couple boulders um, around the base are kind of like those beautiful big boulders and sheer rock um, almost when you get to the river down below. And again, in, in, in design, it's kind of nice to work with odd numbers. A single becomes a focal point, and then a grouping is three, five, seven. If you start doing even numbers, um, it kind of throws the whole thing off. So if you think about it in terms of odd numbers and a single element becomes a focal point. Exactly. And um, if you're going to do three or five, um, break up the size of the boulders. Don't do three all the same, boom, 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 you know, because then it'll look kind of funny. And so to create, um, to create that, 
that river, we often use um, river cobble. Yes. Which, and one more thing I want to say about the rocks. When okay. you're placing them, you want to look at a soil line. Um, rocks come out of hillsides and where there's actually a soil line. So what you don't want to do is you just don't want to drop them so they look like a meteor that came out of the sky. You actually want to bury part of them so that they look seated and that they look like they belong there. Otherwise, they're again, they're just going to look like they dropped out of the sky. Right, right. Yeah, you want to dig them in a little bit. Well, um, where we're at in Sacramento, this was in the 1800s, the scene of the world for gold mining. Yes. And as they dredged up the rivers, they dredged up the river cobble. So we have lining our American river, um, all this river cobble. So it's, you, you know, it's indigenous to our area. It might be that where you're at, there is a different type of cobble. But when you want to do a cobble stream, what you don't want to do is buy bags or yards of all the same cobble and make a cobble stream and say, there you go. You Just like in nature, you want to use big pieces of cobble or stone, smaller ones, medium ones, and kind of mix it up. Absolutely. And when you, if you are going to do a dry creek bed or a dry stream bed, um, and you want to, you also not only want to mix up the size of the rocks, but you also want to use some boulders. And the way you do that is, it's almost like what they, what happens in nature. Water starts coursing through an area. It hits a rock. It can't move the rock because it's not strong enough. So then it changes direction. When you're trying to do a dry creek bed or a dry stream bed, you can use the big boulders to change the direction and make it feel like it's more of a meandering stream. And that's kind of one of the secrets so that it doesn't look like a straight shot, a flume coming out. Um, it actually looks like a meandering river. Right. And boulders also can serve the purpose of making an endpoint to your to your river cobble. So, you know, depending on what your landscape looks like, you might not have any logical place to end it. So if you have a grouping of boulders and the cobble kind of pools around the base, that's um, that could be a way to end it as well. Um, when you're if doing- you want to get your, I, what I was going to say is if you want to get your inspiration a lot of times is go when you're hiking or if you go to a, um, um, a river or, or a stream and actually look and see how it looks out in nature, take some pictures of that. Because again, that's one of the best ways of recreating the, the feel. And you'll see that, that the, the smaller rocks are down in the center, the bigger rocks are more towards the, the borders because they've been pushed by the water flowing through. And uh, then you, you might even see a boulder in the middle where the water goes around it. Um, again, nature is such a great, great place to look to kind of emulate what you want to create. Right. And you have the added benefit of the, the peace and serenity and beauty of nature. So not a bad idea. Um, with the river, what I was going to say with the river stream through your landscape, I never make mine wider than three feet and I have it go from three feet to two feet to one and a half feet to three feet, just like a river, you know, the, right. the ground is, uh, it's not a straight shot. You know, I used to show up at job sites and the workers, I'd get there and the cobble stream was one straight line, all right. cobble in the middle, and then all the big rocks in a line on either side. And that's just not what you're going to find in nature. Exactly. And again, if 
you keep you keep thinking about what do you see, even if you just Google pictures of natural streams. And again, you'll see, you know, out in nature, nature doesn't follow a straight line and everything. The other thing is, uh, if you're making that, you should as you dig it out, the depth changes. Sometimes it's it's shallow. Sometimes it's deeper. Sometimes it varies in depth. And what you can do is on the bottom before you put your rock in, use landscape fabric at the bottom. So which which water goes through it. But this way, you also don't get weeds coming through the middle of your dry creek bed. That is absolutely imperative because the other if you don't have a weed barrier underneath weeds are a big problem but um also if you have a rainy rainy season the rocks are just going to sink into the mud and it's you right. know there goes part of your stream now um michael sort of touched on it but when we do a cobble stream if we we cut a little bit of a v or a swale and so uh so the river you know it's not one flat area it's swaled a little bit but if you want to run your drainage from the house let's say into the landscape that's a great way of doing it is to put your drain line through that cobble stream don't go all the way to the street because then you're losing precious water if you go you know midway or three quarters then that water can start to penetrate into the soil which where we're at i mean we're this is our first real rain in in i don't know how long how many months months absolutely months and the other thing that's really kind of nice is um, we talk about a weed barrier, but don't think that it think black plastic or plastic is a weed barrier no. that will be asphyxiate the soil. Weed barriers, um, landscape cloth actually is um, water and air will will go through it so that you get an exchange. Otherwise, you can if you put black plastic or you put plastic down, you can basically kill all of the microorganisms in the soil and you also asphyxiate the soil. So it's really important not to use plastic when you're doing a dry creek bed. No, use something breathable. But anytime you go to a, a material supply and you ask for weed fabric um, or weed barrier, they'll know what you're talking about. Right. Okay, so so let's say you've 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 built a, a nice little mound, and right along the base of it, you have a cobble stream that heads off in one direction and goes in another direction, and then there's some nice boulders around there. Um, so if if you were just to do that in your landscape, a few of those and the cobble and the boulders, you're three quarters of the way along a, a beautiful new um, landscape. Really, doesn't have to be fancy, but um, that uh, just just doing that will get you pretty far, but on the top of the mound, I always start with the largest plants on the top of the mound, if not the trees. What about you, Michael? Same thing, same thing. Something that you want to be your focal point, something dramatic. Whether you do like a weeping red bud, or whether you do a serpentine cedar, or you do a, a river birch, something that's going to give you a lot of drama. Yeah, and if you don't want to do a tree, then it should be a large shrub, but something right. that um, you know has like a, a big flax or you know something that has nice um, character. And if you do do a tree, what I normally do, and I'm sure you do as well, is um, when we add lighting, LED lighting, we uplight that, which is just an absolutely stunning um, sight in the evenings. It's, it's important to think about what you're doing is you're creating a focal point. You're creating something where visually, as you look out, 
your eye doesn't just take everything in at the same moment. It takes one thing in and then it starts looking at the other elements. So by by putting something, uh, a wow feature, whether it be a flax, whether it be a multi-stem crepe myrtle, whether it be a multi-stem tree that has a light on it, suddenly you've got this drama where then you can go to your secondary elements, to your third, but you always want something primary that you really capture your attention right and if you keep the drama outside maybe there'll be less drama inside <laughs> sounds good to me <laughs> <laughs> now um something really important uh i i bought my house over 20 years ago and my house was built in the 1950s and in my backyard uh, not too far from the house actually if i had planted it, it would have been much further is a sycamore. And so when this sycamore was planted, who knows, over 50 years ago, they put some camellia bushes around the base. Well, here's, here's the thing, folks. Everything grows. Trees grow. Trunks grow. So now those camellia bushes are part of the trunk of a sycamore tree. So when we start planting our plants around the tree, You've got to leave at least, you know, depending on your tree, six to eight feet or more away because that tree is going to, whatever they planted, maybe it was a three, four inch trunk, is now a three foot trunk. Right. And so you need to do your due diligence when you're planting something. You want to read about it before you buy, you buy it. Um Sun or shade, how big is it going to get, Where, um, what the caliber is, what's the spread, so that you're not putting something that looks adorable and cute when you first buy it right near the, the base of your house or the foundation of your house, and then finding out that it's going to be 30 feet tall with an equal spread, and all of a sudden it's growing into your foundation. So again, part of the, the effort, and that's why a lot of people hire, uh, hopefully professionals, is to do your due diligence and read about it so you're putting the right plant in the right place. Exactly. Um, I've been to job sites where, the, where trees have grown. They've been so close to the house that they've um, completely destroyed the gutters. And then um, a beautiful fall color tree, the liquid amber or sweet gum, those trees will lift your foundation of your house. You just don't want them close to any foundation or your concrete driveway or your pathways. You, you really need to know about this. Right. Absolutely. It's like putting a weeping willow near your water pipes. Oh, those my God. Yeah. Are, are attracted. Poplars are the same way. Cottonwoods, they, they, the roots search out water and they always joke about it. But it's not unusual if you have a weeping willow and it's too close to a house, its roots will grow into your plumbing. And I've heard situations where the root comes out of the toilet. You know, it, it's I've heard as Roto-Rooter's favorite tree. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, I'm sure of it. Because, yeah. again, they will go into the into the pipes, into the sewer lines, and they'll crack it, and they're, they're searching for water. This so you, you need to be real cognizant of what you're planning near pipes. Exactly. All right, so let's say on the top of the mound, we either have a large shrub, and then we have a tree, and then we're going to start graduating the sizes down. Because if you put a small perennial that only gets 12 inches high – and then the next plant is something that gets three feet high. You'll never see your perennial. So, you know, this is basic, but it's surprising how often it happens that I'll see a landscape where um, all this beautiful color is hidden behind the shrubs. You, you know, you, you just can't see it. So now we're going to start graduating down. And just like what we spoke about um, in our earlier podcasts is um, 
the medium-sized shrubs now. So you've got something large, either a tree or a big shrub on the top. Now we're going to go for the medium-sized, which I guess is a relative term, but let's just say we're going to stay in the kind of the three to four foot size. How's that? That would be great. So for example, something like that would be the Nandina, the mm -hmm. Heavenly Bamboo Gulfstream. Maxes out of three exactly to four feet. Exactly what I was going to say. That so if if let's say you have a tree there that's going to have fall colors, and then you plant a few one two maybe three Nandina Gulf streams, which is in the the common name is Heavenly Bamboo, but it has nothing to do with bamboo. It is not in the bamboo family. It will not run like bamboo, but right. what it does do is it turns beautiful colors in the fall. So um, if you have a tree, let's say a, a maple that's going to go red and you have the Nandinas close, then you've got this great color. Another shrub that gets a little bit bigger is the Coleonema Sunset Gold. Yes, that's a real pretty one. And, yeah. and what I like about that one is when the wind blows, it's kind of very, very wispy. Yeah, it's wispy. It also has tiny, tiny little pink flowers in the spring, and it's evergreen. So the Nandina is evergreen. The Coleonema is evergreen. There are now smaller versions, um, hybrids of the Loropetalum, which is the Chinese fringe flower. Yes, that's a really pretty one. That's beautiful, too. And that, again, it's non-deciduous, meaning evergreen, except it's plum color, although it does come in green. But um, so let's say your next layer is uh, three to four feet, maybe five feet. And um, you could use deciduous as well. I very often use the red barberries, which are stunning in the spring and summer and fall. And then they're, you know, they're deciduous. And uh, that's a very interesting point. What One of the things that I do with design is I juxtapose deciduous plants in front of evergreen plants. So when they lose their leaves, you get some really cool branching structure and behind it is something that's green all year round. Yeah. If everything in your yard is deciduous, then in the wintertime, you're looking at the whole yard, looks like bare sticks. But right. if you incorporate evergreens with deciduous, then you get color and texture and interest. So it's not all one note. It's not like a one note landscape. Exactly. You want, and, and so my, I, my rule of thumb is 85 to 90% non-deciduous and then the deciduous. And so what that does when you start using plants that are inherently, um, have color like a variegated plant or a plum colored plant or the Nandinas, then, um, you'll have color all through the winter. It's not going to be perennial flowers, but it's going to be color. Right. Or leaves or something. Absolutely. So again, when you're looking out and even in, in climates where you're getting snow, your evergreens, you know, when the snow falls on it, it's just really dramatic because you have the green peeking through um, the white snow. And it's it, that's wonderful. It's wonderful. You know, something that you have back east that we only have in limited um, quantities here are the are the conifers and dwarf conifers. And so much of, or so many varieties of the conifers, because I've, I've been to the growing grounds up in Oregon, get shipped to New York or the East Coast because they won't let them into California. I don't know why. Right. right. So um, I think I think conifers um, and dwarf conifers sort of have a bad rap because in the 60s, everyone planted these massive junipers, you know, and, and, and there was no color, no change, but really junipers... I like the old gold and the sea of gold. Um, when they're worked in with these other plants, they're stunning in the winter. So, you know, if you do the Nandina is a little higher on the hill or Laura Petalum, and then as you come down right behind the boulders, 
to do a juniper old gold, which only gets three feet. It's stunning color. Or you could use, if you want something very low in spreading, you can use the shore juniper. And that's nice because what that'll do is that'll climb over some of the boulders, um, onto the boulders, and also climb onto the river cobble. And so it softens it. So you don't have these hard edges. You have the planting to soften down. And then you go in between the, the, the fronds of the shore juniper, you have the rocks. Right. There's shore juniper, Wiltoni juniper. If you go into Sunset Western Garden, they there's so many juniper, such a big, um, just like Ceanothus, such a big variety that they have it classified as ground cover, shrubs, and <clears throat> and then really large, large, large trees. Yep, absolutely. I'm so, not, you know, the big ones, I'm not a big fan of growing up in Southern California. There were always, they were like highway, freeway dividers were the big junipers, but some of the some of the shorter ones, like she was saying, the old gold or the shore juniper or the procumbens nana, which is another ground cover. Um, they're delicate and they're beautiful and they're very feathery, and it's amazing how pretty they look, especially in a more natural setting with like a dry creek bed or a dry stream bed. And they're hardy and they're drought tolerant as well. Yes. Uh so now let's say we've got Nandina and maybe Laura Petalum, Polyonema, Juniper. At this point, I would start mixing up the textures. I would add either a flax with pointy spear-like leaves or a cordyline, which is an Australian shrub, um, depending, or a variegated yucca if it's really hot. It really depends on your zone. But when you start changing up the leaf pattern as well, again, it's more interest. It's like looking at a jar of candy that's got all these different colors in it. Absolutely. And one of the yuccas, there's red yucca that's gray leaves and it sends plumes of beautiful red flowers. Or there's one that's called Bright Star. If you can imagine, it's lemon yellow with green stripes. And it's absolutely spectacular. And again, full sun, hot, drought tolerant, and it's pretty amazing in the landscape. Again, it's the Yucca Bright Star. Yeah, they also bloom. Yes, uh, they white flowers. They, they send up stalks with white bells that hang down. I mean, they're really beautiful. So um, so now, uh, now let's let's just go back again. We have a mound. We have a cobble stream at the base. We have boulders. We maybe have a tree on the top. We've got some, you know, three to five foot shrubs around, not too close to the trunk. And as we're going down, we're we're finding lower plants, but with nice te texture. And um, as we get closer to the cobble stream, that's where we could start working in some of the the small ornamental grasses and your yep. perennials, the black eyed, uh, the not just black eyed Susan, the nipophia, the um, red hot pokers, you know, things like that, that you would see along the stream. Ace and tree. you also another plant, a nice plant to incorporate. You don't, they don't last in terms of uh, the emphasis, but in spring, they're beautiful would be the Douglas iris. You can actually plant those and those are natives and they pop up in the springtime. They send out iris flowers and they're really pretty. Um, I, I, I have a client that every year, their daughter has given them a new variety of iris. And um, iris are beautiful when they're blooming. When they're not, you don't see them. But they're wonderful along cobble stream. And if you're doing a Japanese garden, um, I mean, very often you can see this, this wooden walkway with cobble stream and maybe a stream. And then these iris, these insada irises coming up. And it's just stunning. Absolutely beautiful. The other thing that's really... Um, I. I 
if you want color. Um, you also want something deer tolerant is society garlic. Yep, and they're edible. The flowers taste and smell like garlic. They're purple, and you could put them in your salad. Yep, and the deer hate them. So again, yeah. that's, you know, for depending <laughs> on where you where you're uh, living, you may have to deal with you know um, varmints or or animals. So your society garlic is deer proof. Your juniper is deer proof. There are a lot of the a lot of the and the herbaceous things. A lot of things like. Um, rosemary, lavender, salvia, um, artemisia, the silver artemisia. Exactly. The deer will leave alone alone, and they're great along a dry creek bed or dry stream bed. And again, they look very natural and they bloom, but you're not going to have to worry about, you know, that the deer will come in and mow them down. Right. You know, I don't know if you're, um, well, lantana wouldn't be a backy shrub, but lantana is also deer resistant, and it comes in almost every color now, white, yellow, um, rainbow colored, yep. red. Lantana, for, for a temperate climate, lantana is spectacular. And again, it would look really, really pretty trailing into um, a river stream. Right. And if you have lantana and you're doing, oh, let, let's say if you do the lantana that's the orange-red color, behind it, I would probably put... Um, a red barberry called orange rocket, and then a coleonema, and you've got this explosion. And then down below in the cobble stream, I would dot red hot pokers on either side of the stream. I'm telling you, it would be like walking into a, you know, a painting. That's how lovely. I actually planted, and that's a great idea. Um, they're invasive, so you have to watch out, but I'd use horsetail, equisetum. Oh, my um, Grow native by a stream, you'll find them just growing. But I planted the the red hot pokers in and amongst the the equisetum, and when they but when everything kind of grows together and spreads, it looks like the the horsetails are blooming. Now I hope you contain those somewhere because um, the horsetails will go anywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, you actually can. You can put them in a in a pot, or you put them in a in an area where they can't spread. Because you're right. I mean, in Northern California, as um, Roberta said, we're in in Sacramento area along the American River and the Sacramento River. Um, horsetails grow wild along the rivers, and mm-hmm. they grow on the banks, and they just they're they're pretty spectacular when they grow. But they are they're extremely invasive. Yeah, we also have wild fennel, too, along the rivers, which is um, really lovely. Um, you know, another plant that we just haven't mentioned, there's so many plants we haven't mentioned, but um, ground cover roses are wonderful for mounds as well. I love those. They're beautiful. The I, take the I, would, I love the ground cover roses, the flora carpets, and they come in a myriad of colors. The only time you would not use those is if you have uh, deer. Uh, large deer. Deer think that they have the gourmet restaurant and they will literally mow it down in one day. It doesn't even take, you plant it, the next day you come back, it'll be gone. It'll be down to the stems. It's gone. I think anybody that lives in deer country already knows that. And hopefully they didn't learn it by um, losing all their beautiful roses. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, we're, we're getting close um, and, you know, we're just beginning, so we're not going to get to planting pots, but um, let's just continue a little bit for another few minutes along the cobble stream. This is where you can 
um, pop in your perennials. And generally when I put in perennials, whether it's Echinacea, Coreopsis, Black-Eyed Susans, I group them, not just poking one here and another somewhere else. If you group them, you're going to get the maximum color when they're blooming. Right. And think of it in terms of doing a painting. If you put a dot of color somewhere, it really doesn't show up. But if you really want the color to show up, you put a whole swatch of color. So she, Roberta's right. You want to do three, five, seven, 12, a lot of them, a big mass of it, because when they bloom, you'll, you'll notice them. If you put one in, um, when they bloom half the time, you don't even see it. So again, this is one, one occasion where less isn't more, more is more. More is more, right. And also know that um, perennials only bloom for a certain period. So you want to back them up with something that blooms at a slightly different time. So, you know, it's, it's a trick. And that's really why people hire landscape designers, because this is something that we just know by rote. And um, when I'm putting in a landscape, I am thinking about every different season and what's going to happen in the season as far as blooming goes. Because your clients are going to say to you, I don't want to look out there and just see blah green. I'd like color at different times of the year or texture right. going on. Because so again, in California, you don't want to just look out there and look at bare sticks. No. And, you know, you know, when you're back east, you're going to look at snow. But again, as Michael said, if you have the, the forms in England as well, those, those stunning gardens that have um, boxwood hedges and yew hedges and topiaries, they're a whole magical scene in the winter because they're oh, just absolutely. the same covered in white. Absolutely. I love that. And, and the snow adheres to the shape. And so you now have a topiary that normally would have been green is now all white. These white balls are white spirals. It's, it's really pretty spectacular. It is. It is. You know, we're at that point now. We're just heading into, well, into the Thanksgiving holiday. And after that, it's the Christmas holiday. And then around the dark night of winter, you know, in late December, January, where there's not much going on, you're done with the holidays, you're putting away all your holiday gear that's been outside or, you know, maybe your holiday lights. But then it's time to start thinking about the spring garden. And you want to think about it before you get to spring. And that's, that's what we're doing here. We're giving you ideas. Right. And one thing that I will say is if you have a uh, large area, and again, you want color and you want to do color for spring, but you don't want to have to wait till spring, bulbs are wonderful in around a dry creek bed, a stream bed, a mounded area. One of the things that I tell people, um, daffodils, deer tolerant, narcissus, deer tolerant. Um, what you do is a mass planting. You don't just make a line of them. You actually put them in a bucket, you throw them in the air and wherever they fall down, that's where you plant them. And you do masses of them. Because if you can imagine, you've got this mounded area that you've created, the dry stream bed. And all of a sudden in the springtime, when we're done with winter, you start getting these bulbs popping up in the yellow flowers and the white flowers. And the longer you leave them, they keep multiplying. And uh, there's a place in Northern California that's now closed, but it's called Daffodil Hill. And that's exactly what happened. They started with a small area and the daffodils were planted and they just keep growing and growing and growing. And it's hillsides upon hillsides of the most magnificent narcissus and daffodils you've ever seen.
It's beautiful. And depending on where you live, if you were, let's say, to underplant with um, forget-me-nots or lupin, I mean, it would be absolutely stunning. And if you're going to plant bulbs, it's time to do it now. You'll see yep. them in the stores now. They're yes. in stores now because it's now time to plant them for spring. And you dig a hole, as I said, do it randomly, but you dig a hole, you put a little bone meal at the bottom of the hole, plant it, cover them over. You're not going to see much, but at the um, in the middle of winter, they're kind of dormant, but right as it starts warming up, you're going to see, see their little heads pop up, and it's it's magical. It really is amazing. It is. I, You know, I have some that are starting to pop up now. It's, I don't know why, but uh, maybe because it stayed so warm for so long, but... Yeah. They've got little green, you know, shoots coming up. And it is, it's just, you know, it's just that sign of renewal. And when all else goes to hell, and lately this year, a lot has gone to hell with COVID and everything else. Um, seeing new growth and and rebirth happen, that's just so calming to our souls. So I agree. It, it, it renews it renews you. So, I mean, and, and depending on the climates, now in Northern California, Parts of Northern California does get cold, but back east, um, a plethora of like tulips. Tulips are amazing. Here, we have to leave them in the refrigerator and we have to refrigerate them for at least 72 hours, at least. But back east, you can plant them when it gets cold. And I'll tell you in the springtime, there's nothing more magnificent than hundreds of tulips in bloom. Oh, yeah, I know. I don't know if you've ever seen um, the pictures of Amsterdam. They do in this one area, they create like a tapestry rug, but close up, they're all tulips, sort of like a Rose Bowl parade, but these are, you know, it's flat. Right. It's, it's I don't think, I've never been to Amsterdam and I've never seen those tulips, but I have to say they're, they're just, they're one of my favorite flowers. I mean, some of the tulips are just, that they're amazing. They're just amazing. Well, they're amazing. And they were traded like stocks at a certain time, you know, like the stock market. Yeah. People um, buy one tulip and they would um, they would risk their fortune on it and it's a really wonderful book is by Mi Michael Pollan and um, he writes about tulips apples uh, potatoes and also um, marijuana those Very four and then you could go on but there's history with each of those like with the apples I don't think most people knew this but Johnny Appleseed was a real person and back when they were homesteading, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln and others wanted people to come west and start, you know, homesteading and, and building the, the nation. And you had to, to claim your land, you had to plant an apple tree. So Johnny Appleseed, he would go down the rivers on his boat with bags of um, cuttings, apple cuttings. And I didn't know he was a real person. Yeah, it's, there's such great history. And, um, yeah, and the tulips are another. So, anyway, um, there's there's so much to learn about plants and their history and and all that and flowers as well but um and who brought flowers where thomas jefferson brought so much over here you know the pineapple and all kinds of things and um, bananas but anyway it's for the dark winter nights is a wonderful thing to study Sounds and and one little hint, I just want to say 
earlier in the in the podcast, you had talked about lighting up at the top of the mound. I have to give you a little hint. If you put a little bit of light down the, the river stream bed or the, the dry creek bed, um, you don't have to do a lot of it. The lights and the darks give the feeling that it, you actually have running water. And sometimes even in a dry creek bed, if it's close to the house, I'll put a little fountain or the sound of running water. It just recirculates. But what happens, it's really an amazing thing is, let's say you have a small, like a bird bath trickling, and then you have the light and dark in the dry creek bed. Your eye plays tricks with you and people will come over and say to you, oh, I love your stream. Well, right. and, and the running water is amazing. Well, you don't have running water, but the light in a dark place and you hear the sound of water from, say, a bird bath, you will automatically begin to think that the water's running through your dry stream bed. Right. There's all kinds of wonderful tricks. And um, there's also LED lights that hang from the trees um, and, and throw light down below. It's really, I mean, lighting is beautiful. We'll, we'll do a whole show on lighting because Absolutely. I tell my clients it's, it's the frosting on the cake. So. Absolutely. Well, if you have any questions, you are welcome to go to our website, which is diggingdeep.blueberry.net, and that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.net. So uh, missing the E and the U, but blueberry.net, diggingdeep.blueberry.net, and you can ask questions. You could uh, uh, you could ask us about combinations, plant combinations, anything you want, and we'd be happy to to review it on our next podcast. We would be thrilled. <laughs> thrilled. Well, we would love to. You, you could tell we never shut up anyway, so we'd love to have <laughs> more things to even to talk about. Exactly. So thank you for joining us. It's a, it's a wonderful time right now with fall, and it's actually we're having our first rain. We're very excited. <clears throat> and so I'm Roberta Walker. And I'm Michael Glassman. And thank you for joining Digging deep. Digging deep. We never get that right, so we'll we'll just. (laughs) Okay, thank you so much.